U.S. Navy history arriving. Welcome to the U.S. Navy History Podcast. I am Dale, and fresh off his punishment, Stephen. Hey, Stephen. Hey there, everyone. Now, have you learned your lesson? Yes, I have. Uh, Do not replace the Stars and Stripes with the Jolly Roger, even if it is Talk Like a Pirate Day. Won't happen again. Exactly. Good, 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 good. And... I did talk the men down. They decided not to do a mutiny on you this time. Okay, so phase two of the intended takeover of the ship is going well. Moving on. (laughs) (laughs) So today we're going to start with the Reform War. How does that sound to you? Well, you'll have to reform my memory on the Reform War. Well, then I shall reform your memory on the Reform War. If you're ready to get underway. Let's cast off. Okay. This was in Mexico. It is a very long struggle between the liberal and conservative forces that dominated the country's history in the 19th century. The liberals wanted a federalist government, which was to limit Catholic church and military influence in the country. And the conservatives wanted a centralist government. They even wanted a monarchy, and they wanted the church and the military to keep their traditional roles and powers. So after the end of the Mexican War of Independence, the country was strongly divided, which, you know, that's what happens during a civil war. Yep, you you win, and then suddenly that united cause you had is resolved, and oh, oh, We could just keep getting along. Or we could start focusing on those disagreements we have. Yeah. So from 1821 to 1857, there were 50 different governments in charge of that country. When you say 50 different governments, like 50 different administrations, or like they just kept on rotating through different forms of government? Yes and yes. Oh, my goodness. The type of governments that they had during this time had dictatorships, constitutional republican governments, and even monarchies. Uh, Did they consider voting a dog or cat in as mayor? I hear that does wonders for some communities. They might have tried a donkey. I mean, the donkey never proposes to raise taxes. The donkey is yet to be found in a... With a mistress in his stable. The donkey's doing good. We, we keep re-electing the donkey. Yeah, well, I mean, the donkey's a bit of an ass, too. So, the division was roughly divided into the liberals and the conservatives. The liberal movement started with secret meetings with the Freemasons. And the nature of the Freemasons allowed for discreet political discussions. And the conservatives favored a strong central government. And a lot of them wanted a European-style monarchy. They also favored protecting a lot of the institutions that they had from the colonial period, which included taxing and exemptions for the Catholic Church and the military. 
and the liberals, they wanted a Federalist Republic based on ideas of European Enlightenment. So pretty much on one hand, we have one faction that is very much inspired by the ideas that the French Revolution kick-started. Yes. On the other hand, we have a faction that is very theocratic and, you know, looking at, like 200 years in the past with how they want to approach the, making the government of Mexico work. Yes. Giving the church and military most of the power that is not given to, I'm going to go out on a limb and assume not an elected official. Yeah, probably not. Probably someone who's job uh job experience to get the position involves you were born first with a penis from the person who previously had the job yes good enough for us yep one wanted a king the other one did not one wanted to be france the other one wanted to be england <laughs> so pretty much until the end of the reform period mexico is going to be dominated by both of these factions fighting for control and also fighting foreign incursions at the same time. And the reform era is historically defined from 1855 to 1876. So in the 1850s, the liberal factions got power under leaders such as Benito Juarez, Miguel Laredo de Tijada and Juan Alvarez. And this happened because the United States took about half of Mexican territory after the Mexican-American War. Yeah, oh, yep. Yeah. I was going to say, uh, we, we kind of went over just how much Mexico shrank in size in that two-year period. Liberals also thought that the church and the military were the source of Mexico's problems. So the liberals had two factions inside of it. It was the Perros and the Radicals. And these two factions were united when Juarez and Ocampo, the leaders of these two separate factions were exiled in New Orleans in 1854. You know, you could do worse places to get exiled to. Good food, good parties. That is true. Plenty of Mardi Gras. <laughs> and one of the big reasons why these guys were exiled is because they supported the uprising of Juan Alvarez against Santa Ana. Guys, it's Santa Ana. Just... Be on board the replacement, okay? The guy didn't do anything right. Yeah, he lost it. And, and that's just ignoring the fact that he pentacrossed. I think there was a pentacross somewhere in there. Certainly wasn't a double or a triple cross. It, it is his fault that Mexico lost Texas and the southwest U.S. No, no. I Santa Ana was quite clear that it was all those peasants. They just didn't have the... Uh, patriotic spirit to you know go out and fight when they've had zero training never mind zero pay or you know terrible conditions in the camp mm -hmm. i digress uh yeah santa anna screw that guy. 
Well, those guys also did bring about a document called the Plan of Ayolta. And this plan brought together a coalition of forces that were able to oust Santa Ana from the presidency. Good. The liberals also challenged the Catholic Church in Mexico. So the state leveled measures in the 1820s and adopted the reform measures of Valentin Gomez, which led to the political defense of Mexico's Catholic identity. This included the integration of church and state. Oh, so we're going full theocracy now. Yeah. This ideology, of course, had roots in European Enlightenment, quote-unquote, which sought to reduce the role of the Catholic Church in society. So these reforms, of course, is part of the Reform Era, which was done in two phases from 1855 to 1857, and then 1858 and 1860. So the Reform Laws themselves... So... Santa Ana's being ousted. Right. And that brings in Juan Alvarez. Alvarez appointed other radical liberals to posts such as Benito Juarez, filling the role of Minister of Justice. Miguel Lurado de Tijadas as Minister of Development. And Ocampo as Minister of Foreign Affairs. The first of the liberal reform laws was in 1855. This was called the Juarez Law. This restricted clerical privileges such as, well, specifically, the authority of the church courts. For this, they were allowing Catholic courts, you know, for lack of a better term, an inquisition, if you would, to preside over civil cases? They had more authority than civil law. Okay, what what if you weren't a Catholic? Didn't matter. This is a Catholic country at this time. Folks, if you decide to uh, form your own government, please don't choose a theocracy. You'll make the XO very sad if you do. So this was thought up as a moderate measure. Instead of just kicking the Catholics out, they were like, you know what? We're just going to make you less important and we won't abolish you altogether because they also didn't want to tick off the church because of how powerful the Catholic church is at this time. So rather than just saying, all right, you know what? We're going to go full, you know, new French Republic post the revolution and all the churches are now temples of reason. No bishops allowed. No clergy allowed. It's like, guys, you just don't get to be in charge of presiding over criminal and civil cases. Mm-hmm. Okay, that seems reasonable. It, like, if anything, I'd say they're getting off easy. Yeah, they're getting pushed out slow instead of off with their heads. Monsieur Guillotine is an equal opportunity dropper. Now, the archbishop in Mexico City, a guy named Lazaro de la Garza, he was like, no, this is an attack on the church itself. And the 
clerics, they started rebelling. Some of the other laws attacked the traditional privileges that the military had. And this is significant because the military had been instrumental in keeping the Mexican governments in office pretty much since the 1820s. So the next reform law was called the Lerdo Law, after Miguel Lerdo. And under this law, the government started to take church land. Well, that is way too far, according to, uh... Why am I drawing a blank? Vatican City. This was very, very controversial. Even more than the last one that kicked him out of the courts. Well, the last one just kicked him out of the courts. This is property. This is a tangible thing of value. Yeah. People get a little more, uh, cross when that gets involved. The purpose of this law was to convert the lands that were held by corporate entities, such as the aforementioned church, and turn them into private properties. So this was to favor all the people that already lived on the land. So this this is, uh, communism is in its early stages. Karl Marx only wrote the manifesto, uh, what, the 60s or 50s of the 19th century? Yeah, it's a at least 100 years later. Uh, yeah, yeah we're, we're half a century away at least before, you know, communism starts becoming an international widespread movement. But this is land redistribution. You know, get it out of the hands of, you know, those that already have a crap ton of resources and pass that land on to local families that could actually benefit from it. Well, not only that, but this allowed the government to raise revenue by taxing them. Okay. Sensible on both counts, I'd say. Yeah. So the Minister of Finance required that the church sell a lot of their urban and rural land at reduced prices. He's like, you're not gouging these people. And if the church did not do this, the government would just hold public auctions instead. <laughs> and we have a Santa Maria Basilica right here. And I do I hear bidding at 500 pesos, 500 pesos. They already going at 505, 505, 505. Thank you very much, sir. 510, 510, 510. And it's going for 505. The gentleman with the excellent hats. Wow, five cents. Cool. I I have no idea what the peso to American dollar conversion is. Pretty sure it's a penny. Oh my. Anyway. And the law also stated that the church could not gain possession of properties in the future. Oh my. Yeah. Well, I'm guessing there were a fair few people that got upset about this. And, uh made their points known with uh, bullets. We'll be getting to to the to the hot stuff here in a little <laughs> while. Now, don't think that they're just picking on the church though. Because this law also applied to any corporate body that could own land. So this included commercial land owned by Indian villages. Now, at first, they were exempted from the law, but then the government was like, you know what? You're just Indians. We're, we're doing it. And Dang it. 
Yeah, and these guys lost an extensive amount of land. So by 1857, there were more anti-clerical legislation passed. This included the Inglesius Law, which regulated the collection of clerical fees from the poor. And it stopped clerics from charging for baptisms, marriages, and funeral services. This is when the marriages became a civil contract. But divorce was, like, not allowed. Registry for births and marriages and deaths also became a civil affair with the president registering his newly born son in Veracruz. The number of religious holidays was also reduced, and a number of holidays for national events were started. So they were really pulling out all the stops to try and de-churchify Mexico. They were pulling out all the stops to limit the church's power in Mexico. That's a much more elegant way to say what I said. Yes. It happens every once in a while. <laughs> <laughs> it also forbid religious celebrations outside of the churches. And the you remember the church bells that rang continuously for crap? This was restricted. And the clerical uniforms that they wore were prohibited in public. So, no more church bells at all hours of the night, so, you know, people could actually sleep. Yeah. And if you were not on church property, you were not to be wearing the, uh... The costume. There's a word for it. It's gonna bug me that I'm forgetting it, but yes. Religious attire? How about that? <laughs> That also works. So, one more significant reform law. The law for the nationalization of ecclesiastical properties. And this would pretty much secularize nearly all of the monasteries and convents. They had hoped that this law would bring in enough revenue to get a loan from the United States. But the sales that they actually did have was not good. So, of course, as these laws were being passed, they were like, maybe we should get a new constitution. You know, I'm. <laughs> this is sounding more and more like they had a great idea. Not the best execution. But because it keeps on leading to more and more complications, they keep on thinking, okay, rather than let, let, let's stop, let's take five minutes, figure out, what went wrong and get this figured out before we move on to the next thing. Nope, nope, we're laying down track as we're moving. This train won't stop. We're just going to keep on making more and more changes. Yeah. And eventually everything will fall into place. Cross our fingers. Now, of course, the Congress delegates were concerned that the precedents that were established by all these reform laws and the issue of whether Mexico would have a central an authoritative government or a federal republic now at the end of all this in 1857 they established a centralist component and also they took out the little bit that said the Catholic Church was the official religion 
which allowed laws down the road to establish religious freedom. Good, good. That's always a good thing to have. Now you're thinking about the whole reactions, correct? Yeah. Um, not great, I think, is going to be a good word to describe everyone's react. Well, not everyone's. About half the country's reaction to all this. Yeah. So, yes, each of these new laws was met with strong resistance from the conservatives, the church, and the military. And this all led to a civil war. Another one. After the war is law, the general named Tomas Mija rebelled against the liberal government in the defense of the Catholic identity of Mexico in the Sierra Gorda region of Guerrero, and he would pretty much fight the liberal forces for about eight years. The Lerdo Law and the Constitution in 1857, this resulted in a takeover of Mexico City by conservative forces. This was called the Plan of Tacubaya when the military took over Mexico City. And the president, Comenfort, agreed to the plan's terms. But then Benito Juarez, who was the president of the Supreme Court, he was like, no, I'm going to defend the Constitution. Well, Juarez was arrested. And Comenfort was then forced to resign. And the army general, Felix, was put in his place. Now, after arriving in Mexico City, Felix's supporters, pretty much they were like, Congress, you're closed. And we're going to go arrest all these liberal politicians. And they started to write a new constitution for the country. And this, of course, deeply divided the country, with each state deciding whether or not they're going to support the liberals' constitution or the takeover of Mexico City. Mm -hmm. Now, Juarez did escape prison, and he fled to Quintero. And he was recognized as liberals' interim president. Because guess what? He was already president. And Felix... He took the, his army and started just taking places over in central Mexico, which forced Juarez and his government to flee to the city of Veracruz. And then from there, the liberal government had control over the state of Veracruz and a number of the allied states in the north and central west. So the liberal government would be in Veracruz from... 58 to 61. So, full war went from 1858 to 1861 for those three years that the liberal government was in Veracruz. And this is known as the Reform War. The conservatives, they had Mexico City. And so, in 1860, about halfway through, the conservatives tried to take Veracruz twice. But they, of course, failed. Now, since the 
military was against the liberals. They really did not have any military experience because all the military experience was with the conservatives. But as the war continued on, the liberal forces, they gained that experience and they got aid from the United States. And because of this aid, they would eventually start winning battles. So in March of 1860, two ships that were acquired by the conservative government were, were prevented from entering this city by a fleet of United States Navy ships, which is why... There it is. There it is. Took us a little while to get there. It took a little while, but we're here. <laughs> <laughs> the U.S. fleet attacked the Mexican ships and arrested their crews, eventually kidnapping the Mexican Marines and taking them to New Orleans. This was known as the Battle of Anton Lizardo, which we can get into right after we're done with this general overview. So after this, and with the support of the U.S., conservative forces were starting to get defeated quite a bit. Like in Oaxaca and Guadalajara. And then in December, Miramon surrounded Mexico City. <laughs> and liberal forces reoccupied the capital January of the next year. And once they took the capital, Juarez was like, time to go back to Mexico City. Now, even though they had control of the city, the conservatives still had guerrillas out there opening in the rural areas. So, Juarez's presidency was made official again in March of 61. And even though they had won, their celebrations did not go very far because, as you can imagine, this war had, had seriously damaged their infrastructure. Yeah, war is never good for the economy or, you know, civilian infrastructure in general. Yeah, it, it crippled the economy. It completely crippled it. War has also faced pressures from Great Britain, Spain, and France because they gave them loans for the war. And they wanted their money back. <laughs> well, you won. Good job. Now, about that money. So, eventually, conservative factions in Mexico, who still wanted a monarchy for Mexico, they would eventually go to the French forces and say, Hey, you want to give us some hand? And they installed a emperor during the French intervention in Mexico. But that is where we're going to leave that, because that's the French and Mexicans, not the U.S. <laughs> so how are you feeling about that? Well, that was a roller coaster. Um, yeah. I feel like an entire show could be done, uh, probably by people much more qualified than us, of the tumultuous history of Mexican government after its, you know, independence was won. Fifty governments in pretty much as many years. That's crazy. Not only that, but Mexico has had a... Ever since its beginning, when Spain comes over, it's just a rich history of conflicts. 
and it's it's very interesting stuff. So yes, hopefully there was there is a history of Mexico podcast, but I'll leave that to you to find. <laughs> I'm sure I'll be able to find one with a little digging. Yes, yeah, probably. So the aforementioned battle during this conflict, we're going to cover that. Because, you know, that's the whole reason this subject was even brought up. <laughs> we went into a half-hour deep dive for this, this one bit. And you know what? I think it was worth it. Oh, it, it was very much worth it. Just because we're the U.S. Navy History Podcast does not mean we should just fly through and ignore the circumstances that led to uh, shots being exchanged. And not only that, but it's just... It, knowing a little bit about other his, countries' histories is always very worthwhile. Much. So this is the Battle of Anton Lizardo. This was between the U.S. and Mexico. This had five ships in it. This was a two sloops of war, one on each side, and three steamers. Two on the U.S. side and one on the Mexico side. So Marin, he started purchasing small steamships to convert them into warships. Okay. And his sympathies were in line with the conservative rebels under the president, Miramon, who, as we just discussed, was fighting the liberal government in that was in Veracruz. He hoped to acquire ships, recruit sailors, and then sail them back to Veracruz to begin harassing them. He was also going to transport 4,000 muskets and artillery shells to resupply the conservative army in that region. Now, a lot of the men that he had were part of a mutiny. <laughs> so you know they're loyal. <laughs> exactly. But a mutiny that I believe he was in charge of. So, yeah, loyal to him. But a lot of the other sailors he had came from Cuba. So in mid-February, the mutineers and Cubans left for the Mexican coast. He actually acquired four steamers that he was able to arm. And he took the title of Rear Admiral and named his flagship the General Miramon. He also had the screw ship Marquis of Havana and the Democracy, the Union, and the Messick. So the General and the Havana were armed with a howitzer each. And they all did not leave Cuba at the same time. So they had orders from Rear Admiral Marion to rendezvous with him off of Anton. Lizardo, where they would then sail to Sacrificios. So the general and the Havana arrived off of Lizardo, just north of the San Juan de Ulva Fortress on March 6th, where a United States Navy frigate was operating. Well, that was unexpected. Yeah. The Mexican garrison at the fortress, they signaled the general in the Havana to identify themselves. But the steamers, they did not respond. So the garrison realized that the vessels were from a enemy expedition. So the soldiers 
immediately began strengthening their positions. And they also warned the American ship, which was the USS Savannah, that they signaled those two steamers and that they got no response. So the USS Savannah, they then signal the two ships and they did not respond to her as well. Mm. So the USS Savannah issues orders to the USS Saratoga and say they need to go arrest the rear admiral. Now, only the Saratoga was armed and she had two chartered steamers with her which was the Wave and the Indiola, but they had no guns. Now, what they did have was United States Navy sailors who were armed. And they also had United States Army troops. Nice. Yeah. Uh, Indianola had a complement of 80 officers, crews, and soldiers. And the Saratoga who was commanded by Commodore Thomas Turner, which was part of the home squadron, he had about 200 officers and men. She also had four 8-inch guns and 18 32-pounders. Oof. Yeah. The Savannah, she was like, oh, you three guys, you got this. I'm, I'm just going to stay here. And she stayed anchored. <laughs> You guys deal with this, all right? I'm rooting for you. But they also thought, you know, that's a sailing ship. They might be a little bit too slow to catch steamships. And, of course, the Mexican troops that were in the fort, they were not in range, and they were not able to participate in the battle either. So the Saratoga and the steamers, they leave their patrol at 2030 on March 6th, and they go to Anton Lazardo, and they find the two rebel ships anchored at just about midnight. The Mexican sailors on board these two steamers, they see the sloop of war, and they're like, nope. <laughs> and they weigh anchor, and they start fleeing towards Sacrificios, now, the Americans, they did close range to within hailing distance, and they ordered them to stop. These orders were, of course, ignored. I mean, these guys haven't been communicating with anybody. So Saratoga fires a warning shot. This, of course, was also ignored. So Saratoga fires four more warning shots. They're really trying to end this peacefully. We just want to talk. So the general replies by firing her howitzer into the pilot house of the Indinolia. Okay, so uh, things just got from warming up to hot awfully fast. Yeah, because the Americans, they were not ex expecting resistance. They were very surprised by this. Yeah. But it did not last long. They returned to fire. The Indianola closes within boarding distance and board the general. Now, Commodore Turner, he tries to avoid friendly fire and directs his men to change targets from the rear admiral's ship 
to the Marquis of Havana. So that leaves Saratoga dueling with the Havana for a short time. Remember, one howitzer versus all those guns. Well, I mean, that one howitzer shot did work. Yeah, an, un, an unarmed steamship. <laughs> details, minor details. One shot hit the Havana and blew a hole through the hull of the wooden steamer. This was above the waterline, but the Havana was like, that's a hole. That's a lot of guns. We surrender. <laughs> they surrendered by raising their colors. Okay. Which was actually a Spanish flag, probably from Cuba. <laughs> How out of date was it? No idea. I, looks like they grabbed the wrong flag from the flag locker. <laughs> so the Saratoga captures her while the Indiola and Wave keeps chasing the Marimon, or the General. Seeing that the General was close to escaping, the Saratoga joins in and quickly catches up with her huge sails. Right. So the Saratoga comes alongside the general and boards her the fun way or the hard way, depending on how you look <laughs> at it. This is without grappling hooks. Oh, no. Or planks. They jumped. Oh. Oh. Oh, my. I thought they only did that in movies. <laughs> now, this first wave was fought off. So Saratoga is like, you know what? We're going to try again. And so at this point, the general was steaming through shallow waters. And she actually ran aground on a shoal. So as the Saratoga draws in close for another boarding attempt, the Mexicans were like, we're done. You win. <laughs> you win. We surrender. So there were about... 30 wounded men aboard the general when she was captured. And we're not exactly sure how many were taken prisoner, but the wounded were quickly moved to Saratoga where they received medical attention, which was very nice of them. Quite. In addition, they captured about 4,000 rifles. Wow. They captured about 1,000 artillery shells and they gave them to the conservative forces, which they needed quite desperately. Mm -hmm. This was an important battle that helped end the end the Reform War because of the loss of supplies. Now, the United States did anchor out there and try to retrieve the wreck of the general because, you know, they wanted to, to take it. Right. But this did not work. So they just left her there and set sail for Veracruz. There was one American who died. Oh. And three were wounded. Both the Saratoga and the Indianola were slightly damaged. I mean, the Indianola took a round right into her pilot house. <laughs> yeah, that, that takes a little time to repair. The prisoners were handed over to the Mexican authorities at Veracruz. 
Now, the Marquis of Havana, they did take her. And that boat eventually ended up in the Confederate States Navy during the American Civil War and was renamed the CSS McRae. That's cool. I mean, not great, but kind of cool. Yeah. And Commodore Turner? Mm-hmm. He later served with distinction during the Battle of Charleston Harbor, which we will get into, believe you me. And he became an admiral. So there we go. That's the battle. So relatively short and sweet, a lot of uh, running away very slowly and ignoring every single, hey, pull over, pull over to the shore right now or you will be fired upon for real this time. Guys, I think they're being serious. Shoot the pilot house. Shoot the pilot house. Shoot the pilot house. Yup. And after that, it did not end well for them. <laughs> so we got the Paraguay expedition. That's, this is a real quick one. This was a mission set to Paraguay in 1858 because they wanted to demand a apology from the government for firing on a U.S. Navy vessel, the USS Water Witch. And this is an example of U.S. gunboat diplomacy. <laughs> Let's hear about it. So... Congress authorized the Naval Squadron in 1858 to go to Paraguay to seek redress from Paraguay for shelling the Water Witch in 1855. This resulted in the death of the ship's helmsman. So President Buchanan appointed James B. Bolin as the American commissioner to conduct these negotiations. Now, to lend credibility to Bolin's demands, Buchanan ordered the Navy to establish a force which could compel compliance. So you know what that means. Cannons. Lots of cannons. Exactly. However, there was only a couple of sailing ships assigned to the Brazil squadron and a couple light draft naval steamers available close by as well. So, to meet the needs of this expedition, the Navy charters seven steam-propelled merchant ships. Hmm. Now, the expedition is led by Flag Officer William B. Shubrick, and they leave New York City on October 17th of 1858. This task force comprised 19 ships. Holy crap. They pretty much steamed independently because mm -hmm. having a formation of 19 ships during this time is exceedingly difficult. So they formed up off of Uruguay when everybody got there about December 29th because that's when the last ship, which was the slowest ship, got there. So all of them, except for two, got underway on December 30th and went up the Rio de la Plata, the Parana, and the Paraguay rivers. So they were like, <laughs> So upon reaching Rosario, the Water Witch and Fulton leave pretty much everybody behind and they keep going to 
Ashion. They arrive there on January 25th, and that's when Bolin goes ashore to conduct negotiations with the Paraguayan president, Carlos Anton Lopez. And they completed the negotiations in two weeks. Not bad. Right. And nobody got hurt and nobody died. Holy crap. No shots were fired. It's a miracle. It's a U.S. Navy history podcast miracle. Yes, it is. But because of the firepower, the United States did get the apology they were looking for. (laughs) They paid off the family of the crewman that was killed on the Water Witch. And they gave the United States a new and very advantageous commercial treaty. I mean, gunship diplomacy is effective sometimes. Yeah, here's our terms. Sign the paper, or be fired upon. He presented very convincing arguments. Alright, last, we are going to do the Perry Expedition. I know you've been looking forward to this one. (laughs) Well, I mean, how can we forget about the uh, glorious trip that a famous actor from a 90s sitcom took? Or is this the wrong Matthew Perry? That's the wrong Matthew Perry. You did it again. Oh, well, let's hear about this expedition. This was a diplomatic military expedition, which I don't know how you could say diplomatic and military without cringing in the same sentence. It's gunboat diplomacy. (laughs) This was in 1853 to 1854, and they went to the... I'm going to butcher this, but... Tokugawa Shogunate, and this also involved two separate voyages of warships by the United States Navy. Now, their goal was exploration, surveying, and the establishment of diplomatic relations and negotiation of trade agreements with various nations of the region. This also included the opening contact with the government of Japan, which was also considered the highest priority of this expedition. So, there was growing concern between America and China because of the presence of American whalers in waters off of Japan and the increasing monopolization of potential coaling stations by European colonial powers in Asia. Because of all of this happening, President Fillmore is like, we need to go to Japan. (laughs) But of course, the Americans are also driven by manifest destiny. Huzzah! And the desire to impose the benefits of Western civilization and the Christian religion on what they perceived as backward Asian nations. That just felt disgusting, reading it and saying it. Yep. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Now, up until this time, you know, Japan had a policy of isolation. And as the world expanded and technology made things more accessible, this starting to get a lot harder for them. 
the Dutch king, William II, he sends a letter in 1844 urging Japan to end their isolation before the outside forces them to. In other words, it's like, dude, it's going to happen anyway. Embrace it. it. Try to do it peacefully. Otherwise, people are going to come in with guns. All right, well, who told the Dutch king about the game plan that America had? Nobody. He was trying to help them, help Japan <laughs> out. The U.S., up until this time, tried to send at least 27 ships, which included three warships, to Japan, but they were all turned away. There were also increased sightings of foreign ships into Japanese waters. So this led to a huge amount of debates from the Japanese government on how best to meet this potential threat to Japan's economic and political sovereignty. So something happened in May of 1851. The American Secretary of State, a guy named Daniel Webster, he comes up to Commodore Olick, who was commander of the American East Indian Squadron. And he goes, okay, guys, look. I have 17 shipwrecked Japanese sailors. And they're in San Francisco. Why don't you take them? Take them home. And hopefully this goodwill gift of, you know, their citizens, this you know, might allow us to talk with maybe starting commercial relations with them? On the one hand, I know the reason they're doing this. On the other hand, that is a actual nice thing to do. Yeah. Especially back in this era where that's probably a month-long voyage each way, assuming there's absolutely no problems. Yeah. So, Webster, he writes a letter. And he addresses it to the Japanese emperor. And he tries to assure the emperor that the expedition they're about to launch has no religious purposes. We don't want to force our religion on you. This is only a request of friendship and commerce. And, you know, can we have some coal so, you know, we can get back? <laughs> uh... This letter boasted of how the Americans were expanding across the North American continent and how technologically advanced they were. And this letter was also signed by the President Fillmore. Now, Olick does become involved in a diplomatic fight with a Brazilian diplomat. And he also fights with the captain of his flagship. Oh, boy. So, the powers that be are like, you know what? We're not going to be bringing this idiot over to do negotiations with Japan. He's just going to fight him. <laughs> so, instead, they send Commodore Matthew Perry, as he is the senior ranking officer in the United States Navy, and does have diplomatic experience. Well, you know what? Those are both pretty dang valuable. Mm-hmm. So, of course, Perry is aware of the difficulties involved in attempting to establish relations with Japan. 
And so he was like, you know what? This might work better out of the Mediterranean squadron. That fell on deaf ears? No, no, no. He was like... Alright, so Perry, he's well aware of the difficulties of trying to establish a relationship with Japan. So he's like, can I not and instead go over and command the Mediterranean squadron? Because, guys, this ain't gonna work. He and he said, there is precedent to why this is not gonna work. He goes, because several American ships have traded with Nagasaki under the Dutch flag because the Dutch was like, hey, can you guys give us a hand? Because they, at that time, were at war with the United Kingdom and Napoleon. So they subcontracted U.S. merchants to engage in a bit of false flag mercantilism. Right. So they already had some experience of, oh, it's only the Dutch allowed in here. And in 1837, a American businessman named Charles W. King, he saw the opportunity to open trade by returning three Japanese sailors that had been shipwrecked off of Washington. He went to the Uraga Channel with Morrison. That was his boat. So he went to the Uraga Channel with on the Morrison, which yeah. is his merchant ship. And he was attacked several times. Oof. So he just noped out. Don't know what happened to the three Japanese sailors. Hopefully they didn't try to toss them at the attackers. But you never know with these racist idiots. In 1846, Commander James Biddle, he anchored in Edo Bay on a official mission with two ships, one of them being a warship with 72 cannons. And he asked for ports to be open for trade. But, of course, they said, Nope, uh-uh, get out of here, bye, we don't want anything to do with you. <laughs> and then a couple years later, Captain James Glynn sailed into Nagasaki, leading to the first successful negotiation by any American and Japan. So Glenn, he recommends to Congress that negotiations to open Japan be backed up by a demonstration of force. And this is what paves the way for Perry's expedition. Well, I, I was going to say that I, I forget why the Dutch were given uh, the green light to do limited trade in Japan, but... I mean, if you want to get something accomplished with a, at the time, nation that is lagging behind decades, if not a century, by for, compared to you, yeah, bringing big guns is a way to do it. Now, Perry, to his credit, he does do some research before he sets out by finding any book he can about Japan. He also consults with a Japanologist, which I didn't know was a thing, named... <laughs> Philip Franz von Seinbold. This guy spent eight years working, teaching, and studying at the isolated Dutch island training post of Dijima, which was in Nagasaki Harbor, before going back to the Netherlands. Perry also demands greater latitude in his orders from Webster, 
which he got from the Secretary of State before he died in October. Soap Perry sails for Japan with full discretionary powers, which includes the use of force if the Japanese treat him as they had Commodore Biddle. So pretty much he has a blank check to use whatever methods he sees fit. Yes. And he also refuses to allow any professional diplomats to come with him. That bodes ill, Will. But he does take a painter and photographer. (laughs) On one hand, I get it. You know, new technology, you want to document what's going on. On the other hand, um, maybe bring a diplomat as well. He thought an agricultural specialist would be better. He brings one of those. What? Yep. Well, color me very confused. Well, I mean, the State Department says take them, you take them. Several Japanese castaways are also on board, and he intended to use them as unofficial interpreters. He doesn't have an official interpreter? Maybe the agricultural specialist? Oh, goodness gracious, this is going to go so poorly. There's no official interpreter listed here. So they took the USS Mississippi, the USS Susquehanna, and the USS Pohantan, the the store steamships, USS Lexington, USS Supply, and the USS Southampton, and the sailing sloops, USS Macedonian, USS Plymouth, and USS Saratoga. Now, he put officers in charge that he had served with in the Mexican-American War, To make sure, you know, he had everybody's loyalty. Now, he did receive permission as well to take government stores as gifts for the natives. Especially obsolete small arms. This included the M1819 Hall rifles. With around 4,000 rounds. He brought 20 percussion pistols, which included about 2,000 rounds. He brought 20 artillery swords, 20 muskets, and 40 light cavalry sabers, and 100 Colt revolvers. So, uh, enough to, you know, get a small army going, almost. No, this is 100 revolvers with 20 percussion pistols and 40 rifles. Oh, okay. I guess I heard artillery sword, and I thought, well, I have no idea what that is, but it says artillery, so... Oh, boy. You know, officers carried swords during this time, period of time. Right. So the artillery officer would have a sword that identified him as the artillery officer. That's why it's an artillery sword. Okay, see, I thought this was some sort of uh, artillery piece that they just called sword. No, no, no. It's an actual sword. Okay, okay. So, he gets to Japan for the first visit. This happens 1852 to 1853. He chooses the USS Mississippi, which, is, which was a paddle wheel steamer as his flagship. And he leaves Virginia in November of 1852. And, you know, on the way out there, he goes to a number of different port of calls. And one of these ports of calls was in Hong Kong. This is where he meets a 
American-born sinologist named Samuel Wells Williams. And this guy had actually been to Japan with Morrison in 1837. So he provided Chinese-language translations of Perry's official letters. Huh. And, yeah. And he rendezvoused with the Plymouth and Saratoga. From there, they continue to Shanghai, where he meets the Dutch-born American diplomat, Anton L.C. Portman, who then translates his official letters into Dutch. And that's where they meet up with the Susquehanna. He then makes the Susquehanna his flagship and goes to the Roku Islands, which he ignores the claims of the Satsuma Domain on the islands, as was his order. He threatens the local authorities by threatening to attack with 200 troops unless he was allowed trading rights and land for a coaling station. There are some people who say this was a bluff, but you never know with these type of guys. Yeah, yeah, that could have... Considering the, you know, orders he was given and the freedom as well to do as he saw fit for this mission, I, I'm in the... He, he would have done it. Right. So he lands all of his marines, and he drills them on the beach for hours and hours and hours while demanding an audience from the king. Now, he knows that everything he does is going to be reported to the Japanese authorities on Edo. So he carefully avoids meeting with low-ranked officials and made a big show of using military ceremony and shipboard hospitality to demonstrate both American military power and peaceful intent of his expedition. Funny way to show peaceful intent. Yeah. Now, he does leave with promises that the islands would be completely open to trade with the United States, and he goes on to the Agasawara Islands in mid-June. And... There he meets with the local inhabitants and purchases a plot of land. So this brings us to when he reaches Uraga at Edo Bay in July of 1853. At this time, his fleet consists of four ships, the USS Susquehanna, the Mississippi, Plymouth, and the Saratoga. And as he arrives, he orders his ships to steam past the Japanese lines towards the capital of Edo. And he positions their guns towards the town of Uraga. He then loads blank shot into all of his cannons. Just to make a big show of it? Yeah, he claims this is in celebration of American Independence Day. Now, his ships were equipped with a new type of shell called the Phoenix Shell Guns, which were capable of wrecking explosive destruction with every shell. So these were the first naval guns designed to fire explosive shells. It's a French design. That's kind of cool. Not their intended use, but cool. Yeah. So, the American ships were pretty much 
surrounded by Japanese guard boats. Now, Perry orders that any attempt to boarding them is going to be repelled. And one of the Japanese boats, they had a large sign in French telling the Americans, go away. Now. <laughs> so on... <laughs> you like that. Sorry, that that's just so... I mean, they have every reason to believe that, you know, well... French. Somebody's got to understand French on those ships. Well, Dutch. The Dutch do French as well, so... Right. And that's what their experience is with the Dutch. So, so on... So, on the next day, uh, a few interpreters rose, row out to the Susquehanna, but were at first refused permission to come on board. After some negotiations, they were allowed to board and they displayed the orders that they had that no foreign ships were allowed into Japanese ports. Perry meanwhile remained in his cabin and refused to meet them sending word through his officers that he carried a letter from the President of the United States and would only deal with officials of sufficient stature and authority. So he's like, you guys are too low time for be able to talk with me. He he doesn't want small fish, he wants big fish. Yeah. So the day after, on the 10th of July, a man named Yuriki Yama Kayama Eiselman, and I apologize. I, I was gonna for... say if if, if you wanna if you wanna copy and paste that, send it my way, I'll read it. Exo took three semesters of Japanese. Oh, thank God. Do I speak it well? No. Do I? Am I able to read a English translation accurately? Yes. Yoriki Kayama Iaizeyamon. He was pretending to be the... Uraga Bukyo. He went to the Susquehanna... And he was allowed to meet Captain Franklin, whom he advised to travel to Nagasaki, as this was the designated port of call for all foreign contact. So, Kayama was told that unless a suitable official came to receive the document, Perry would land his troops and march on Edo to deliver his letter in person. Kayama asks for three days to get a response. Now, the actual... <laughs> <laughs> One second. The little preview's over. Uraga uh, Bugyo. And his name was... Hido Hiromichi. He sends a report to the Shogun and advises that his defenses were totally inadequate to repel the Americans by force. So Perry, he decides he's going to begin a campaign of intimidation. He sends boats to survey the surrounding area. And he threatens to use force if the Japanese guard boats around the American squadron did not go away. He also presented the Japanese with a white flag and a letter which told them that in if they decide to fight, that the Americans 
are going to vanquish them. Now, the Japanese government is at this time paralyzed due to the incapacitation of the shogun named Tokugawa Ieyoshi. Now, Tokugawa was sick. So there was political indecision on how to handle this threat that's never happened before to their their capital. So on July 11th, the senior... Roju... Wait, is that a name or is that a title? Title followed by name. Okay. <laughs> uh, Roju? Okay, that can't be right. Abe is a Western name, but uh, if it's a Western name, it's Abe. If it's a Japanese name, it's Abe. Uh, Masahiro. He decided that simply accepting a letter from the Americans would not constitute a violation of Japanese sovereignty. So the decision was conveyed to Uraga and Perry was asked to move his fleet slightly southwest to the beach at Yokosuka, where he was allowed to land on July 14th. So he goes ashore with pomp and circumstance, because that's, you know, what he's trying to convey. And he lands 250 sailors and marines. And after a 15-gun salute from Susquehanna, the Marines presented arms, and a band plays Hail Columbia. Now, President Fillmore's letter was formally received by... Hatsumoto Toda, uh, in quotations, Izu no Kami, and quotations, Ujiyoshi. And by... Ido, in quotations, Iwami no Kami, and quotations... Hiromichi. So Perry's squadron finally leaves on July 17th for the Chinese coast, promising to come back for a reply. So Perry's gone. As you can imagine, there's extensive debate within the Shogun's court on how to respond to the implied threats from the Americans. Wait, we were vague enough that it was only implied? Maybe there's a translation error. So the Shogun, he dies just days after Perry leaves. And he is succeeded by his young son, who is also very sick. Hail Columbia has that effect on some people. <laughs> so administration was left in the hand of a council of elders, which was led by Abe. He felt that it was impossible for Japan to resist the American demands by military force at this time. But he was also reluctant to take any action on his own authority because this is something that's never happened before. This is unprecedented in Japanese history at this time. So he's trying to legitimize any decision. So he goes to the daimyo. 
and ask them their opinions. This is the first time that the Shogunate has allowed its decision-making to be a matter of public debate. And this made the Shogunate portrayed as weak and indecisive. And the results of this poll failed to provide an answer for Abe. We know of 61 responses. 19 were in favor of accepting the demands, and 19 were opposed. Were the remaining 23 just inconclusive? 14 gave vague responses expressing concerns of possible war. Seven suggested making temporary concessions. And two said, we'll just go along with whatever's decided. The only universal recommendation that everybody agreed to was that uh, they need to bolster their coastal defenses. So it is time for Perry to come back to get his answer. So he comes back the next year and learns that a Russian admiral, vice admiral, oh, this is going to get butchered. I can't help you with Russian, man. They use a Greek alphabet. That's fine. I'm just going to do my best. Yofimli Putunian had called Nagasaki just after he had left Edo Bay and had spent a month trying to force the Japanese to, to sign a treaty with them before Perry gets back. And he was also told that the British and French had intended to come with him to Japan in the spring to ensure that the Americans did not obtain any exclusive privileges. So, Perry comes back February 13, 1854, with eight vessels and 1,600 men. So, the Shogunate, the Shogunate had decided to accept pretty much all of the demands in Fillmore's letter. But, the negotiators they procrastinated for weeks over where they wanted to hold the official negotiations. Perry insisted on Ito, and the Japanese were like, no, here are some other choices, though. Perry, he eventually loses his temper and threatens to bring a 100 ships, which is actually more than the size of the actual U.S. Navy. Within 20 days and declare war on Japan. Okay, Perry, buddy, calm down a little, okay? So both sides eventually compromised on a tiny village called Yokohama, where a purpose-built hull was built for Perry. So Perry lands on March 8th with 500 sailors and Marines and three bands which all played the Star-Spangled Banner. The next three weeks, negotiations happen with diplomatic gestures like exchanging state gifts. So they gave him all the gold. So Perry gave them all the old guns. They also presented the Japanese with a miniature steam locomotive, a telegraph apparatus, agricultural tools, and 100 gallons of whiskey. 
Well, now it's a party. Now it's a party. He also has some clocks, stoves, and books about the United States. Now, the Japanese gave them gold lacquered furniture and boxes, bronze ornaments, silk and brocade garments, porcelain goblets, and when they heard about Perry's personal hobby, they gave him a collection of seashells. Did he collect seashells by the seashore? And when he did that, he was called Sally. I knew it. Cultural displays were also performed on both sides of the aisle, with the American sailors putting on a minstrel show and a number of high-ranking sumo wrestlers performed feats of strength and held matches. So, at the end of all this, on March 31st, Perry signs the Convention of Kanagawa, and this opens ports of Shimoda Kadarut to American ships and provides for care of shipwrecked sailors and the establishment of an American consulate. The treaty was signed on the Japanese side by Akira. <laughs> you said it with such confidence. I'm so proud. <laughs> Perry then dispatches the Saratoga home with the treaty, while the rest of the squadron goes to survey Hackadate and the site of the future consulate. So when he leaves, he returns to the Raku Islands, where he swiftly orders the compact between the United States and the Raku Kingdom, which was formally signed on July 11th of 1854. So Perry finally returns home in 1855, and Congress grants him a reward of $20,000. Or in today's monies, seven hundred thirty-seven thousand. That's not a bad bonus. Yeah, you got the Japanese. I got the today's monies. <laughs> <laughs> in appreciation of his work to in Japan, so he uses part of this money to prepare and publish a report on the expedition in three volumes, and he calls this the. The narrative of the expedition of an American squadron to the China Seas and Japan. And he had Francis L. Hawks write this for him. It was first presented as a report to the Senate and then published commercially. And Perry is also promoted to Rear Admiral. Perry spends his last years preparing for publication of his account of the Japanese expedition announcing that it was completed in December of 1857. Two days later, he is retired. And he, well, he's detached from his last post. And while he's waiting for his next order, he dies on March 4th of 1858 in New York. He dies of rheumatism that had spread to his heart because of gout. And that ends our coverage of the Perry Expedition. So, first and foremost, I want to apologize to any Japanese speakers whose ears are bleeding because of my pronunciation. 
Thank you, Etso, for your pronunciation. And when we get into the Pacific side of the World War II, you're going to be doing a lot of that. I was going to say, I think I just got a, a preview of what's going to be happening in... <laughs> I mean, I can't say how many episodes, but in about 90 years, um, you're going to have to be flexing those muscles again. I'm sure Sensei Kitamura will be appreciative that, that I still remember some of this. <laughs> <laughs> so, as we sign off for today, would you like to uh, part any last words, any last feelings, thoughts... Our email address, our Twitter. Well, first of all, if you guys want to uh, write an email to us about how Japanese, once you get past the fact that it uses a different character system than Latin-based alphabets, is actually really simple and nice, uh, you can send us an email at usnavyhistorypodcast at gmail.com. Yay! Okay, okay, he... did. You you had me uh, a little worried with that waiting before giving the thumbs up. <laughs> or you can tweet at us at USN History Pod. Beautiful. I'm so <laughs> proud of you. It only took half a year, folks. And the links are all down in the show notes to both the email, Twitter, and our ship store. Yes, we have a swag shop now. You can wear the U.S. Navy History Podcast shirt. You can get it on a mug. You can get it on a lunchbox. We're working on getting the U.S. and History Pod flamethrower, but something about being able to sell that online is uh, a little tricky. Yeah, that's... We don't, we, don't, we don't have the money for permits right now. No. But... We hope you enjoyed it. If you could leave, if you could leave us a review, that would be wonderful. We will enjoy reading that. And with that, we wish you guys a fair winds and following seas. U.S. Naval History Podcast departing. Mm-hmm.